As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. everyone and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Joe Lowry and on today's episode we're going to take a detailed look at the NWSL final. The final is between the Washington Spirit and the Chicago Red Stars and it'll be on Saturday November 20th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at Lynn Family Stadium in Louisville and on TV on CBS. To help us all learn more about the final and the two teams playing in it, I chatted with a pair of folks who covered the NWSL and know more than a little something about the Red Stars and the Spirit. First, I chatted about all things Chicago Red Stars with Claire Watkins, who writes about the NWSL for The Equalizer, The Defector, and Just Woman Sports, and hosts the Southside Trap podcast about the Chicago Red Stars. And second, I spoke with Jason Anderson, who covers the Washington Spirit for Black and Red United and who hosts the Plex Weather Podcast about the Spirit. Jason also serves as the managing editor for Black and Red United. If it isn't clear from those bios, Claire and Jason know their stuff. So without further ado, let's get into this NWSL final preview episode. I'm now joined by Claire Watkins. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. A little surprised to be uh, speaking on the vantage I'm about to be discussing, but thrilled, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So let's let's just dive right in there. This is somewhat of a surprising final, right? Third and fourth seed coming coming into these playoffs, making it all the way to the final. The Red Stars for themselves finished fourth in the regular season with 38 points from 24 games. How how did they get here? How surprising is this? Walk me through their playoff path. Yeah, it's. I think it's surprising in the context of Chicago's full season, not necessarily the most surprising in the context of larger sports stories that we've heard before. Um, so Chicago made I th- made some choices and had some adversity early in the season in terms of injuries and sort of group cohesion, meaning that they kind of had a rough first half of the year. They were kind of flirting with playoff positions, falling out, falling back in, not unlike a lot of sort of that middle of the table pack this year. 
And then they just kind of turned it on. They they won, I think, four out of their last five games of the regular season, obviously won two postseason games to get to this game. Um, it seemed a little bit like a calculated decision to give themselves some time to figure things out. And then their playoffs started really about a month ago, if not a month and a half ago, just to play in. And they've been carrying that mindset in ever since. And I think that that's what we've seen in these two postseason games as well. It, it was a strong run of form from Chicago to end the season as you're talking about there, Claire. I want to focus for just a second on the semifinal game, a 2 nothing win over the Portland Thorns in Portland, a team that beat Chicago 5 nothing uh, earlier on the season in the first game of the regular season. What a performance from them, right? In a lot of senses, Portland was better, right? Sophia Smith was causing a ton of problems on the left side, the right side for Chicago. How how did the Red Stars manage to win that game and how much of that boils down to some pretty impressive defensive solidity? Yeah, I mean, you nailed it. Um, I think the way Chicago plays in any game is they give themselves a shot by their defensive organization. That's where it begins for them. Um, how did they win the game? I The goals that were scored um, were slightly miraculous, to be completely honest. And um, the goalkeeping, I think, on, on Portland's side left a little bit to be desired, though obviously um, there's there's under, understanding for why that was. But um, yeah, they were without a lot of people. But I think what has happened for them is they've been without a lot of people all year. Um, I think sort of setting that tone with losing Julie Ertz in the first game of the regular season kind of shaped their mindset a little bit. And so going through the Olympic period, all of that, they changed their formation to be more defensive. They've been running dual six sixes since um since about halfway through the year. And they feel like if they can just do that, if they can disrupt the other team, then they will always have a chance. And especially again in playoff soccer, that we've seen that work well in the past in tournaments. And so getting more tactically into it, they just wanted to nullify Portland's midfield. And as good as Sophia Smith was, she had to do a lot on her own. Because they Chicago did a very good job nullifying Christine Sinclair. Portland didn't have all of their midfield uh, players available. Obviously, they were missing both Crystal Dunn and Lindsay Horan, which meant that Chicago could make some choices on who they wanted to smother and force other players to try to play make. And so it seemed like if Portland was going to come back after sort of that, again, sort of a miraculous goal from Katie Johnson, I think a little bit after the, the half hour mark, it was going to take something special. And that's what Chicago's betting on. They're going to make you do something special. And if you can't, they're going to hurt you. So I, um, it was a very impressive performance, I thought, because it felt like maybe the attrition to their roster would just be too great. But it ended up really focusing them. And they pulled off, I think, what I would say is possibly the, that's the greatest upset in, in NWSL postseason history, I think. And an upset, as you mentioned, Claire, done without Julie Ertz, who went down in the first game of the season with a knee injury against the Portland Thorns. How has this team dealt with that absence? You mentioned switching to, to two sixes and having a little bit more defensive solidity. That's not that's not an easy crack to paper over. No, the good news for Chicago is that that is their deepest Part, I'll say part of the field because Julie Ertz has played both central defense for them and defensive midfield. And if I'm going to guess, and I feel pretty confident in this, I think if she had been available post-Olympics, she would have slotted back into center back next to Tierna Davidson um, because Chicago has a lot of defensive midfield depth. So the acquisition of Sarah Woldmo in this offseason has turned out to be huge. She works really well with Morgan Gatra as those dual, dual sixes. Um, 
And then just the really exceptional play of Sarah Gordon, who was not intending to play center back all year. She is someone who her skill sets match outside back a little bit more, and she is a little bit more attacking minded. Um, but when she, you know, saw that she was going to need to be in that central defense, which is a little bit more disciplined, you have to stay home a little bit more. You have a lot of pressure on you, especially in one v one situations. She embraced that. And her partnership with Tierna Davidson has has been part of the foundation as well that has led to Chicago um, posting, honestly, just so many clean sheets in the last you know four or five games. I don't want to focus too much on this because I want this show to be about teams that are playing in the final and about what we might see on the field, players to watch, some, some of the narrative surrounding this game. But I am going to ask, how have the Red Stars players managed to deal with all of the, frankly, scary off-field things that have gone on this season. Specifically, I'm talking about the reports of Paul Riley's sexual coercion and the domino effect that Meg Linehan's reporting had uh, across the league. The strength of these players and these people is amazing to me. From your perspective, Claire, how have they dealt with all of this? Sure. I think that it is part of it is part of the story of their season because I think it's part of the story of everybody's season. Um, and, and I also want to mention the the reporting that Washington posted uh, from from Kaya McCullough, who also came forward about the Richie Burke at the Washington Spirit, because I think that that as well, when when you hear those stories and you yourself are a professional soccer player, um, you're looking for assurances right from your own front office that that won't you know, you're not going to be in one of those situations. But I think also what happened, what I've heard across the league is that players started sharing stories with one another. They talked through it because that's a triggering experience no matter what. And so I think that it was a bonding experience, and though it shouldn't have to be, right? But um, Kalia Watt is Chicago's NWSL Players Association rep, and I think she's been amazing. And she's relatively new to the team. She joined the team um, in the 2020 offseason. And she's really stepped forward into that leadership role. And so I think that it's just caring, empathetic leadership from the player association representatives, even just to allow other players to not have to worry about it too much. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's just talking. I think it's communication. It's getting to know each other better. It's making sure that everybody's okay. Um, and I think that Chicago specifically, you know, we haven't gotten a ton of details, but what they talk about a lot when they were asked about it during that time is just making sure that players feel like they're part of the process. And so they always want players to feel like their voices are heard. They want players to lead the way. They didn't say exactly in what way that was, but it was more just player input is valued in that team. And uh, that is, I think, how Chicago as an organization believes that they can um, prevent harm by just always listening to their players. So, yeah, I, I think that it was a bonding experience for them. I think it, it also coincides with you see their group kind of being whittled away. They lose Ertz. They lose Nayer halfway through the season. Um, and so you sort of look to your left and you look to your right and you see what teammates you have around you and you really rely on them. And I think that that is true for them both on and off the field this year. And, and some of the things you're talking about there, Claire, in terms of, of listening to the players and, and things like that, head coach Rory Dames has had various quotes about that as the season has gone on. And I want to talk about Rory Dames for just a second before we get more into players and some things we'll see in the final on Saturday. He's been coaching the Chicago Red Stars for around a decade now, leading them to a bunch of playoff appearances and to the NWSL final in 2019. And he's an Illinois guy, right? How has he how has he stuck around this team for so long and had so much success along the way? 
Yeah, I think you can look at this two different ways. I don't know if this is exactly how structures should be set up going forward, but it certainly has been very good for Chicago and early NWSL is that Rory Dames is a, a general manager as much as he is a coach. And because he is so entrenched in the youth scene in Illinois and the Chicagoland area for women's soccer is incredibly strong. You see players across the league from from this area, from the suburbs of Chicago, most, most specifically, and a number of Red Stars are, are also from the suburbs of Chicago. And in a league where scouting comes at a premium, having someone who has sort of kept tabs on players for a long time has been really, really useful for Chicago. Um, and then I think you just look at the entirety of it and it seems like Chicago's ownership and, and their front office really values consistency. They've had a consistent core to this group since they really started building that around 2014. So we're entering on seven, eight years with, with this core group. Um, drafting local, using NWSL rules to their advantage, um, making sure players feel settled in this city. And I think that that's why you see Chicago as a team that is consistently part of the conversation, but never quite getting over the top is is because they value not only what's happening this year, but maybe what's happening next year and the year after that and the year after that. So they're always looking forward to make sure that the club stays healthy and competitive. Um, but it would be really nice, I think, this year if if they finally got over the top because of that core group that they've put together, which is getting a little bit older at this point. They're they're nearing nearing the age of 30 kind of all collectively. So let's talk about some of these players, right? Looking ahead to the final on Saturday, I want to give folks some idea of who they should be watching or who they'll enjoy watching most. And I want to start with a player who I'm not entirely sure we'll see. Uh, Mallory Pugh missed the semifinal against Portland due to COVID protocol. Are there any updates on Mallory Pugh, Claire? No updates on Pugh. Um, last we heard post game after the semifinal was... Rory Dames, and I want to specifically say what he said because I don't, I don't want to add any conjecture, but he said that uh, he used the word symptom-free, uh, and he said that it's going to be up to the medical staff, obviously, whether or not Pew will be available. Um, the, the other thing, too, is we don't know how long her, her necessary quarantine might be. We know that those rules are different for vaccinated or unvaccinated players, and we don't know her vaccination status. So um, it could be that she feels fine but still needs to be under quarantine. It could be that, you know, COVID is weird, right? Symptoms could come up late. So we don't know exactly. Um, it would certainly be better for Chicago's chances if if they have her. But what we saw, I guess what we saw last weekend is they can kind of get it done without her as well. So um, I wish, I will say that I really wish that we could be talking about Mallory Pugh as yeah. a certainty going into this game. And it's it's too bad that, that we can't. And even though we can't do that, I, I do want to give just some credit for Mallory Pugh's regular season. She has been one of the best players in all of NWSL this year. It has been a resurgent season for her. Even though we're not sure if she's going to be in the final, how much credit does Mallory Pugh deserve for actually coming in and, and settling a little bit and being so darn effective on the field this year? Yeah, absolutely. I think the main credit I also want to give to her is one that I've given to a number of Red Stars in the past is she got healthy. And the the Red Stars are a very good club to come to when you are a talented player who doesn't always feel like you've gotten enough guidance just to stay healthy, lingering injuries, or they even talk a lot about just sort of muscle imbalances and what advice a player has gotten in the past. And then Chicago basically tells the player, says, okay, you have all of the tools now. 
but you have to do the work to, to care enough about your career and about this team to get on the right track. And we've seen players really respond to that. Morgan Gattra is a player who has really responded to that. She's, you know, a, a cornerstone of the team now when in the past she was known as being kind of fragile. So it's a first a credit to Pew for figuring her body out and figuring her fitness out. This has been the most consistently she's played in her entire professional career. And then, yeah, the work rate on the field is exceptional. It's not only the the assists or the goals. It's she's a get turning into a very nicely well-rounded player. She's very good on the ball. She's good defensively. She's got a lot of pace, so she can cover a lot of ground. And with Chicago, as we talked about, that defensive organization is very important. She's very good on set piece delivery. Chicago has scored a lot on set pieces this year, which is not what they're historically known for. And a lot of that has been her dead ball delivery. Um, It's something where it's, it's when a player is in the MVP conversation for the whole league, despite not really being in the top tier in either assists or goals, you know that they're doing a lot of other things. And that is who Pew is, is becoming. And again, that's why it's, it's frustrating to have that be interrupted, but, um, but absolutely her best year as a professional. No, no doubt about it. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Speaking of players who have had really good years interrupted, I want to talk about Kalia Watt, who leads this team in expected goals and expected assists this season. She's top four in that metric combined, I should say, XG plus XA but left the first half of that semifinal game with a knee injury. Any update on Kalia Watt? And, and even if we don't see her, man, what a, what a season it's been. Yeah, I know. I wish I had more. Um, <laughs> no, I, all I know is that she was not in a brace uh, when she, after leaving the field, she was just ice on her knee, which is certainly hopefully good news. The issue is that the game is in five days, right? So even if it's not a super serious injury, I don't know if that's the same as she'll be able to play in a final on Saturday, but um yeah, like I said, leadership as well. Um, she is she is someone who's been in and around the league for a long time. She's been a professional for a long time. She is someone, too, that has been on that U.S. Women's National Team bubble at times. She was part of the U-20s with a number of players who went on to be part of World Cup squads. And that sort of level of professionalism and intelligence and and veteran leadership has been huge for this team. And she does it on the field as well. I don't think there's any, again, you talk about work rate. I don't think there's anybody on the field who works as hard as Kalia Watts. So um, for Chicago, because they don't get a lot of chances, they really need players to pull space when they do. And that's another thing that that's why her, right. Her actually added is, is so good. Despite the fact, again, she's not necessarily notching as many goals or assists is that she pulls space in a really impressive way, and she is a player that other defenses have to account for at all times. So 
this is definitely why Chicago traded for Watt was to bring all of this. And again, I really hope we get to see her play on Saturday. <laughs> and and she was a perfect player for the opening stages of that semifinal game and for a lot of, of Chicago's other games this year because of her speed, right? Chicago defending deep at times, and that's been one of their MOs this season, having an outlet, right, in Kalia Watt who can break in behind the opposing back line or get out on the break. It's just so important to this team, and, and I'm with you, Claire. I hope we see her on Saturday. If, though, if Mallory Pugh and Kalia Watt are both out, who should folks be watching for in the attack for Chicago? I think if Mallory Pugh and Kalia Watt are both out, there is not going to be a lot of attack from Chicago. <laughs> however, <laughs> however, by design, by design, right? Um, I think you have to look at you have to look at Katie Johnson. Um, she did an incredible job coming in in the semifinal, yes. and she is another player. She's different. She's different than Pugh and Watt. She is not kind of your pacey forward that runs at a back line. She is someone who's very good at hold-up play. She's very good at connectivity. She's almost like another midfielder out there at times. And so she is that kind of player that you hope with a little bit of confidence coming from that semifinal would work really well with Chicago's attacking midfield to create something, um, create something sort of by committee a little bit, because I'm going to players to watch for sure. I think Kelia Watt or sorry, not Kelia Watt. You you talk about Katie Johnson. I think you might see some Mackenzie Doniak if neither Pew nor Watt can go Rachel Hill, but Rachel Hill still really is more uh, a defender from an attacking position. So I'll flip it a little bit and say Chicago has been pretty good at quick trigger, getting numbers forward. So I don't think we know necessarily where the goals will come from, but the idea is to get as much of the midfield around the box as well and just find those spaces and and maybe someone will surprise you, I think is is probably the game plan. <laughs> that's that's entirely fair. I, I want to talk about someone else that you mentioned earlier, Claire, and that's Sarah Gordon, who has been an iron woman for this team, right? Playing every single minute for the Red Stars in 2021. What is it about the coaching staff that, what is it about her, excuse me, that makes the coaching staff like her so much? And, and why has she played outside of the injury to Julie Ertz so much this season? Yeah, I think Sarah Gordon is an incredibly physically gifted athlete um, and always has been. And then as she's gotten older and she's been with the team for a little bit longer, the strides that she's made, not even this year, but 2019, 2018, when she was worked in a little bit more, again, just due to player absences, is the mental side of her game. She, um, She's the fastest person on the field, so she's incredibly important for Chicago in defensive transition because she can keep up with, uh, with the attackers from the other team. She's very good on the ball. Uh, she's able to kind of penetrate. She doesn't try to go too far, but she's able to penetrate on the ball because, like I said, she's originally an outside back, so that's sort of where her skill set lays. And, and yeah, so I think what you see a lot and what you're going to see a lot from Sarah Gordon this in this game is she's going to be tasked with high-risk situations where she's probably going to be one-on-one with an attacker, maybe you know Ashley Hatch or Trinity Rodman, and she's going to have to make a decision. And with Sarah Gordon, the the thing is, is that she always can do it. She always has the ability to come out of 1v1s successful. It's always just a matter of decision making. And she has been so rock solid in the last five or six games in that department as well. So I think that it's a number of things, but it's definitely confidence, uh, stability, and, and the mental side of her game that is so impressive this year. 
She's so fun to watch. Listeners may know that I am a sucker for a center back, especially one one that can run and drive forward on the ball and cover ground and, and really just be a modern central defender in that sense. And that's Sarah Gordon. She is a blast to watch. Claire, you've guided us through a number of different players in this game and even some, some different position groups, uncertainty in the attack and, and strength in, in midfield in that area of the field. How should we be expecting the Chicago Red Stars to line up on Saturday in terms of formation or in terms of you know a player alignment? So that's a very good question because I think it was easy to assume in the Portland game that the sort of four four two that they came out in or you know three one three one four you know three 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 I don't know whatever it was um, <laughs> it was a lot they they moved around four one four one um it's easy to assume that that was because of the absences I'm not sure that's entirely true though I think they that was their game plan specifically to nullify Portland's midfield so when you look at what the best spaces to inhabit to nullify um, Washington's midfield. I think we might see something a little bit closer to what we saw against Gotham in the quarterfinal because they, the, the main, the main focus is going to be probably at least some sort of sustained pressure on Andy Sullivan to try to clog her distribution. And they're just going to need bodies on Ashley Sanchez and then people who can fall back and help with Trinity Rodman and Ashley Hatch. Um, so I think they might go back to the four three three, depending on who they have. If they have at least one attacker back, I would think maybe they go back to four three three and just sort of matching by personnel um, Washington's setup because Portland plays with the with a four four player midfield. So I think that, that might have been more attuned just to them. And then I think yeah, we're going to see the dual sixes sit in front of the center backs. They're not going to try to give a lot of space. We're probably going to see Aaron Wright tailing Trinity Rodman the whole game. We're going to see Rachel Hill falling back from an attacking position to probably try to disrupt distribution, not only from Sullivan, but from the center backs because Sam Staub has been very good with her long ball distribution this year. And, and that's the beginning, right? That's plan a. And then what happens when Chicago gets the ball, which they're not going to have for a lot of the game, I would anticipate them getting 35 to 40% of the ball um, is what magic they can create when they do sort of search forward with numbers. Um, so that's that's what I'm anticipating from Chicago, I think. Interesting. It, it will be, if that plays out like you're talking about, it will be a continuation in a lot of senses of Rory Dames and, and this team's style throughout the year. So it'll be interesting to see if that if that works out or not. I, we, we briefly mentioned the 2019 NWSL final earlier. Uh, I mentioned that when talking about Rory Dames and, and some of the success that this team has had over the last few years. Chicago lost 4 nothing in that game to the North Carolina Courage. What's different now for the Red Stars that might help them win their first championship? What makes this team special? Yeah, uh, that's also a very interesting question because I think, quite frankly, they're not as dynamic as they were in 2019, and that's helped them. <laughs> um, <laughs> they, they came out in North Carolina in 2019 ready to play. They wanted to play. North Carolina to like a good game. They also had a, a high, uh, a very important injury before that match as well with, with Tierna Davidson going down the week prior to the final. But um, I think the difference is that Chicago is not trying to open up and score. They're not trying to go end to end with anybody. Um, they are trying to be a brick wall that, nullifies the other team's game plan and that is the game plan that is the game and that is so different from what they've been in the past I think also the other thing is nobody really expected Chicago to be here 
And I think the expectations in 2019 were quite high. They were kind of a flashy team, right? They had Julie Ertz. They had Sam Kerr. They had Yuki Nagasato. They were coming off of that U.S. World Cup win, right? So they had all of these World Cup stars. Um, And this is just different. This is kind of a group, a scrappy group that no one really thought would be here. And they have a clarity of purpose that I'm not sure that they quite had in the past. And so in a way, thinking mentality-wise, I don't know. It feels like... Chicago is in a good place, again, knowing that Washington is probably going to be more dynamic, have more players available to them. But Chicago knows exactly what to do with that. So I'm optimistic. I think the injury report is going to be really important. I don't know how much you can really overcome, but I think that that's the difference. I think that it's the expectations are lower. I think the group is tighter. I think the, the game plan is simpler. And I think that we know that that kind of a game plan can really work in a, in a winner-take-all knockout soccer game. If you drag someone into kind of a fist fight, you really have a shot. So that's why I'm optimistic for Chicago. Claire, anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important, anything else that you want to add about Chicago or this game, and then, and then I want a prediction from you, if you can, before I let you go. I mean, I think it helps that Chicago's been to the final before. Uh, Washington, Washington has been, but not since 2016. There are expectations to being a finalist. You've got extra media you've got to do. You've got open trainings. You've got a lot of other things going on. I do think that that will also be helpful for them. Um, and and yeah, I think maybe the one player that I do want to mention, that I mentioned her briefly, but I think Erin Wright is going to be very important in this game because she's going to be tasked with covering a lot of ground, especially if they have to start the the rookie on the other side, Tatum Malazzo. So um yeah, but I think that's it. I think uh, I think that's that's your Chicago Red Stars. <laughs> Boom. And, and and can I drag a prediction out of you, or would you? I I, I will fully accept skipping out on predictions. Listeners yeah, I, of the show know how much I hate them. Yeah, I don't love predictions either. I'll be <laughs> I'll be really wishy washy and say this. That's fine. I say that I'll say that if if one even one of the three of Kalia Watt, Mal Pugh, and Casey Kruger can play in this game, I'm picking Chicago. If all three are missing. I think that's one too many. We saw that in the Challenge Cup in last year where they just they're at, at some point the the gas runs out. And so I think that I'll say I do feel good about Chicago if they have their pieces, if they really really do not, I think Washington's going to find a way around them. Claire, we are kindred spirits. That was a perfect prediction and much better than any scoreline. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, uh plug everything that you do because you have been excellent. Yeah, I'll be covering I'll be covering the game um, both for just women's sports for a number of storylines, and then yeah, follow Southside Trap. You know we've been we've been doing this sort of since day one. It's a labor of love. It's something that Sandra Herrera, who is at CBS Sports, and I do for fun mostly. Um, join our Patreon community, listen to that podcast um, because it was a little bit again of a, a surprise that we were going to get that local Chicago element. But I'm happy to do it. So so I would say follow follow that follow that. Excellent. Claire, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. We just finished chatting about the Chicago Red Stars with Claire Watkins, and now it's time to look at the Washington Spirits half of this NWSL final I'm now joined by Jason Anderson, who is going to help us do just that. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. How are you? I'm doing well, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm very excited to talk about the other half of this game, to talk about the Washington Spirit, who, like most teams in the NWSL, have never won the championship. But they have been in the final once before, back in 2016, and they're back again this year. How did the Spirit get here, Jason? Uh, it's been to, to say it's been a, a bumpy ride is, uh, would be an understatement. Um, uh, even going back to the early portion of the season before most of the major news about the club came out, you still had a situation where they they were looking at a different formation in preseason. They abandoned that rather suddenly, rather without explanation. Um, they lost a potential starter in Bailey Feist right before the season started in the last preseason game, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and they were kind of, to be honest, uh, struggling a little bit with um, a very heavy emphasis on being the league's predominant possession team. Uh, the, the league doesn't have too much tactical variation between a lot of teams, but the Spirit were definitely one end of the pull between pressing and possession. Um, and some, day, some days it was working, some days it wasn't. Um, and they were kind of muddling along for a while there. Um, the major news of Richie Burke's eventual departure for the club for um, pretty extensively reported that there was a new report today um, detailing the abusive conduct involved there. Um it does seem to have come with not just a lightening of the mood in, within the team. It sort of galvanized the group, um, but it also came with some tactical changes that have really um, made them less dogmatic uh, towards possession and more effective. And that's kind of, it's kind of hard to argue with 
Uh, I think it's 10 games in a row now without a, uh, a loss outside of the COVID-19 forfeits, which are another factor, of course. Uh, but yeah, it's been a crazy year, uh, a season with about a decade's worth of crazy events. I mean, that is that is very well said. The Spirit finished third in the table this season, 39 points from 24 games. They beat the North Carolina Courage 1-0 in the first round of the playoffs, essentially the quarterfinal round, and then beat O.L. Reign 2-1 in the semifinals, despite giving up a goal in the third minute off of a nice piece of play from the Reign. Uh, this season, as you're mentioning, Jason, has been insane, right? And, and not really in a good way in terms of off-field stuff, right? Midway through the year, former Spirit head coach Richie Burke was fired after an investigation into toxic and abusive working environment created by Burke. They've also had to forego, as you mentioned, multiple games due to COVID outbreak. And then there's some ongoing questions about ownership. I don't want to make this show about that. And I said a similar thing to Claire in, in relation to the Paul Riley sexual coercion uh, reporting that's been done and a lot of the other craziness that's gone on around the league. I don't want this show to be about that, but I do think it's important that we at least mention it and give give the players credit, man, so much credit for managing to put together a, a phenomenal season or even just continuing to play under these genuinely awful circumstances. How has this Washington Spirit group been able to balance those things? Uh, I, I think they've they've talked a lot about um, how many conversations they've been having uh, just from player to player or as as a larger group, um, and taking some pride in in sticking together as a group, even when there are differences. Trying to really band together and take this, you know, I, I think they've they've always had the confidence that they are good enough to contend to be in a final like this. Um, that side of things has never really been in question. Uh, and it's been interesting to kind of hear the players talk about how a lot of what's been going on has simply been a really steady and open dialogue amongst all of them. Um, and I know from a, a few different post games, a few different interviews I've had that um, the there have been some interesting moments where the spirit could have crumbled some of the bad news that's come out. Um, we, we haven't really got into the fact that the, the players have publicly demanded a change in ownership. Uh, it's just that many things. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is that I, I know they cited recently that after the uh, COVID protocol forfeits, um, the team kind of looked at that as a gut check moment and some of the veterans, some of the, even some players who are new here, like Kelly O'Hara and Emily Sonnet, who are in their first year with the team kind of, kind of distilled that down into a moment where it's like, well, we can let this kind of define our season or we can let this be, you know, the moment we really start fighting back and uh, being, at our very best. And it seems to have resonated with the group. And so, you know, not only are we talking about a team that has found good form, but they are almost never scored upon. You, you mentioned the Reigns goal. It was the first goal in, I think, 300-something minutes that they'd given up. Um, and they've been finding – they've been resourceful. They've been finding different ways to win, um, you know, against the Courage in that quarterfinal. They were – Kind of, kind of struggling to get uh, a handle on the game in the first half, and and slowly started to turn it their way. And then in the 70th minute, they made some subs, they made a few adjustments, but really just took their play collectively to another level. And North Carolina couldn't keep up. They ended up with uh, 22 shot attempts in the final 50 minutes of the game, 
um, which normally against the Courage, you just don't get that many looks. But um, they just really managed to sort of, you know, that's a good example of they were looking the Courage, a team that's normally playing this high-tempo, very frenetic kind of style, and they said, we can do that better than you can do that right now. Um, and it's just a, a testament to, I think, the the mental strength of the entire group, um, whether that's starters or um, the substitutes that have, have been coming in. You know, Chris Ward has been using his subs pretty – he's not a coach that looks at the five-sub rule and says, well, maybe sometimes. He's a coach that says, I'm going to use them every time if I can because we've got a lot of good players and, what you know, why rob myself of players who are at full speed um, who haven't been playing 60, 70 minutes so far. So – it's been a mix of, you know, the change in tactics, but also just um, a really remarkable amount of mental strength throughout the entire group. I'm curious to learn a bit more about Chris Ward, interim head coach, uh, taking over this team. They've been getting results recently, as you mentioned, Jason, seven wins and one draw headed into the final on Saturday. What is what is Ward's backstory? It clearly, results-wise, at least he's doing well as a caretaker of this team. What do you know about Chris Ward? Uh, so, so Chris, interestingly, was an assistant in year one for the Spirit way back in 2013. Um, he has spent he ha- as for several years was a, um, a scout for the Seattle Sounders um, in MLS, which is an experience he cited recently as um, you know what, one other thing he learned in that time was that MLS teams have this famous habit of wanting to bring in transfers in the summer, not just because that's a good time for them to do business, but also it does kind of, you know, give the whole squad a jolt that adds some um, competitiveness to training sessions that might not have been there as people got comfortable for the first few months. Um, And he kind of looked at this coaching change as one of several things that could kind of give the spirit a jolt, um, those new eyes. Um, But yeah, he's, uh, he's been a one-on-one coach. He's been a scout in MLS. He's, he's, kind of done it all. Um, he hasn't really been a head coach, though, uh, at least in the professional game at all. It's been lower level stuff, um, club, high school, uh, all kinds of – he's really got a very wide range of um, coaching experiences, which is interesting because uh, he's not that old. Uh, he's not someone that you would think is going to have that that extensive background at his age. So um, he's seen a lot uh, – despite, you know, not, not really having that, uh, you know, 20, 30 years in the game at, at such a young age is a rare thing to see in NWSL. It's really kind of a rare thing to see in American pro soccer. A lot of times the younger coaches that get in, they are ex-players coming in and they sort of come straight out of retirement and go into coaching right away. And his path has been much more getting on that coaching uh, ladder from a very young age and working his way up and really getting um, a pretty crazy amount of experience at a bunch of different um, facets of the game in American soccer. It's kind of a unique story. So looking at how how Chris Ward and and the Spirit want to line up, does Ward have a go-to formation? It was a 4-2-3-1. It looked to me in the semifinal. It's been that at other points this season. You'd mentioned a shift away from the all-possession, all-the-time kind of style. What what should folks be expecting to see from Washington on Saturday? Uh, yeah, it'll definitely be um, something either 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3. Um, they've played that pretty resolutely. There was an attempt, like I said, to play a different formation in the preseason. They were looking at kind of a 3-4-2-1 setup 
In fact, it seemed like their offseason acquisitions were built um, around playing that way. The the idea of bringing uh, Sonnet and O'Hara in on a team that already seemed to have a very good back four uh, sort of pointed them towards playing with one more uh, defender and playing with wingbacks instead of fullbacks. Um, but they, they haven't brought that back at all, so I don't anticipate seeing it. Once they dropped that formation, it was dropped for good. Um, so yeah, the formation-wise, probably that, you know, now that Tori Huster is out for the year, unfortunately, the uh, injury she picked up in the quarterfinal is going to keep her out of the final. Um, it really kind of points towards sticking with the similar um, setup as we, as you saw against the rain. Um, and as far as the stylistic difference, the, what they've changed, um, I was fortunate enough to get to talk to the Spirit about some of the changes they made, very specific, very kind of granular stuff, including um, you know, when they were a possession team, they wanted, as possession teams like to do, they wanted to drop their center backs uh, wide and have a six drop in um, so they could push their fullbacks up and change the change the angles that way. They aren't really doing that anymore. Now it's the center backs stay closer together and are higher up and closer to the midfield. They want to be a more compact team uh, front to back as well as horizontally. Um, they didn't, they, they were basically having a little bit of a hard time preventing teams after one bad pass, you know, in that possession setup from countering them right up the middle. They were really struggling with how do we combat that? And so instead of opening up in the way they were, they're saying, well, we're just going to keep our center backs closer together and closer to Andy Sullivan and Dorian Bailey deep in the midfield. Um, and we're going to try and, you know, be able to counter press. If, if we turn the ball over, it's okay. We can go win it back really quickly. Um, things like that, that were just, not really on the docket when Richie Burke was coaching the team. He was very laser focused on possession only. Um, he His cure for losing the ball or being countered was, we're just not going to lose the ball. We're just going to out-possess everyone to such a degree that none of this other stuff is going to matter. And it turned out from multiple players that I spoke to that they really wanted to have a focus on defensive structure, pressing structure, um, you know, reminders on defensive shapes and some stuff that had just been left undiscussed for months. They really craved that. And so when Ward took over as the acting head coach, uh, he is very big on collaborating with the players. And he went to them and said, like, what are what do you guys think is lacking in what we're doing right now? And this is something they they all every single player I spoke to said that, yeah, we we wanted him to give us some of this focus. And so. Uh, they've really taken to it while not becoming a defensive team. They just wanted to know, we want to be a front foot team, but how do we do that in a way that makes us more effective um, and less liable to give up these goals on the break? And it shows, you know, sometimes the numbers aren't indicative of a major change. Sometimes you get very lucky and don't give up goals or you get very unlucky and do give up a bunch of goals. But I think in this case, the the lack of goals against since they've made this coaching change and since they really took this uh, shift in approach has has kind of it's kind of indicative of, of the work they've been putting in to make sure that they are a little more of a kind of a normal NWSL team in their way. They are more willing to press. They are playing a little higher up the field. Um, there, There is less time in a mid-block and more – I'm not going to say that they're a high-pressing team now, but they're more willing to mix it in from time to time, which is uh, 
it's a fascinating evolution, but it also kind of plays to some of the strengths they have when you have Trinity Rodman and Ashley Sanchez and Ashley Hatch. Um, having a little more transition in your game is a good thing, it turns out. That's a perfect transition. Uh, you're doing my job for me, Jason, because the next question I had for you is about Trinity Rodman. I'm kind of shocked that, that it's taken us this long to get here because she is, from my perspective, one of the stories of this team and one of the stories of the NWSL this year. Just 19 years old. Uh, she scored six goals in the regular season. She's fifth in the league in expected goals plus expected assists per American soccer analysis. And she's third in the league in goals added again. That's from ASA. She scored the equalizer, a lovely right-footed goal with the ball coming in over the top against O.L. Reign in the semifinal. What makes Trinity Rodman so darn good? And when are we going to see her with the national team? I mean, to answer the second question first, I think um, probably in January, uh, it sounds like, is uh, is the plan. Uh, this was – she was on the radar for this last camp. Uh, the wording from Vladko Andonovsky was that she opted out of, of the camp to go to Australia, but that he was keeping a, a close eye on her for January, and it would be really shocking if she weren't called in for that one. So very soon um, on that front. Um, I think – the interesting thing for Rodman is that the first thing you'll notice when she's playing, of course, is, yes, she's very fast, but she's also always looking for spaces to, to make her move into, and she's not making bad choices. This is this is the unusual thing for a 19-year-old is her ability to figure out where the open space is going to be, where the defense isn't expecting her to go, um, or when or going when they aren't expecting her to make her run. Um, her ability to uh, get on the same wavelength as you know, the Spirit, fortunately, have a bunch of players who can play longer balls, whether it's Sam Staub, um, this that's who set up the, the goal for Rodman in this, this last game, Andy Sullivan. Um, I, I think at, at a certain point we were counting how many people have done this for, for Black and Red United, and I think it was four or five different deep-lying players had sprung her on a ball over the top where the defense thinks they've got their line set. They think they've got, you know, everything good to go, but someone fails to press 60 yards away from Rodman and immediately she's in behind. Um, and that's, that's one aspect of it. But what's been interesting as well is that um, she's not just going to goal. Like you mentioned, the expected assist side of this, she finished the year with six. Um, and a lot of this is, once she gets on the ball, it's not just tunnel vision towards goal. Maybe it was earlier in the year, but um, by all accounts, she is intensely interested in improving her game. Um, she, you know, if the coaches say, you know, hey, let's let's work on your cutbacks. Once you get to the end line, don't just run at your defender. Maybe look for a cutback. You're probably going to see her cutbacks get better very quickly. Um, or I know there was a story earlier in the season where they – mentioned that she wasn't getting many touches with her left foot in training. They, they track that with, um, I don't know what the device is, but they've got a little device that players wear on their, uh, shoes to track this kind of thing. And, um, so the next training session, it was just immediately a uh, heavy focus from her, uh, on getting those left footed touches in and striking, not just, you know, simple passes, but striking shots with her left foot or cutting back to cross with her left foot, all kinds of things like that, that are, um, it's it's impressive to see how quickly she's able to synthesize, okay, I'm, I'm not necessarily that good at this, and not just take that on and, and say, okay, over the next few months I'm going to work on this, but like intensely work at it and improve almost immediately. It's 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 really unusual. It's, it's almost like 
um, something out of like a science fiction movie. I don't know how else to describe <laughs> it. Um, so yeah, she she's got pretty much every every tool in in the the kit that you could want. Um, the I think she had the pass the spirits pass of the year um, to set up Ashley Hatch. Or, uh, I want one of the goals in October. October kind of is all uh, one solid game in my mind, um, but. Yeah, she's just, uh, I really don't know where the ceiling is for her. She really is as good as advertised. Yeah, she's she's impressed me every single time I've watched her, all the clips I've seen of her, really dangerous out wide and very capable of cutting inside, uh, depending on where she's lining up on, on which wing. You mentioned, though, Jason, a couple other attacking players, and this is a good opportunity for me to ask you about just general key players, players you're going to be keeping an especially close eye on on Saturday. You mentioned Andy Sullivan already a little bit deeper in midfield. You talked about Ashley Hatch up top, Ashley Sanchez, the Ashleys in that attacking core. Who else are you going to be watching, which is then going to tell us who we should be watching? Well, that's a, that's a good one because uh, this is kind of it, it's been an interesting team in which player player players have had different responsibilities within certain games and um, it's very kind of opponent specific. Uh, this is another thing that has changed from Ward uh, to Burke. And I mentioned earlier the North Carolina game changing in that seventieth minute. Um, that's a change that happened when Ashley Sanchez was removed from the game, which you wouldn't expect. You would think that if she's not in the game. You know, how, how are the Spirit going to be at their creative best? Uh, but they changed the way they're playing. They played uh, Tara Mikion as uh, a high striker rather than they were playing with um, everyone kind of cycled through Hatch, Rodman, Sanchez. They were all playing up front in that game, but they were all kind of cycling through as a false nine. Whoever was playing center forward would end up dropping off. Um, and this was a shift they made to say, we're going to play with a true target forward. Um, we're going to go a little more structured, a little less uh, flexible in terms of the front three is going to stay where they are rather than cycling in and out of positions. Um, but it allowed them to change the game. It gave them a presence up front um, that when they started getting high energy and, and trying to ramp up how fast the game was being played, it gave them that reference point to constantly be able to play to her feet and then receive the ball off of that. And North Carolina wasn't able to cope. Um, but that wasn't how they approached uh, O.L. Reign. They actually started with Mickey Oon out wide. Um, and I know from being at training that they looked at um, both options of playing Hatch as their nine and looking for her in, in behind um, and also looking at Mickey Oon as a target. And they decided, well, let's let's lead out in this game with the, the vertical option. And then if we have to, we can switch them up real quick because Hatch has – added this to her game, uh, being able to come in off the left, mostly off the, occasionally off the right, but almost always off the left. Um, and, you know, run into that space that a false nine leads. And fortunately with, um, whether it's been Sanchez, who's played a lot of false nine this year or Mickey own, um, who hasn't played it as much with the spirit, but had that role with USC, um, in her collegiate career. Um, that understanding of being able to drop off and open up a window for someone to slash in off the wing, whether it's Hatch or Rodman, uh, has really helped unlock teams. But it's, I think it's very important for the spirit that they have that um, flexibility with Mickey Oon now. And, and she's probably going to start. Uh, it seems like the adaptation to losing Tori Huster to injury has been um, not to say let's go like for like uh, in central midfield, uh, but instead – 
you know, who is the next best player off the bench right now? And that has appeared to be Mickey Owens. So they're going to go with her. I, I would expect, um, but whoever it's been in that false nine role, sometimes they stay high uh, and just play it as a natural nine. And sometimes they don't. And it's, it's been very fascinating to watch the spirit be able to change that up within games. It doesn't take, you know, a, a hydration break or an injury stoppage for them to make that adjustment. It's, it's really something that the players are allowed to sort it out for themselves a lot of times. Um, and, you know, when they can't quite come to grips with things, they have been really excellent at using halftime constructively and changing things uh, and getting all everyone on the same page. I think I've heard the phrase getting on the same page about a thousand times in the last <laughs> month talking to the team. Um, but yeah, that, that, that mix of being effective when they have time to get together and actually talk about it, but also being, you know, being inventive in, in, uh, in-game situations has been really key. And that's not just Rodman or Hatch or Sanchez uh, or Mickey Owen. They've gotten good minutes out of Anna Halfordy, even uh, playing central midfield. Um, that I think has added to her list of positions played this year to five or six. Um, so yeah, they, they've really been able to, um, I, I think the phrase Chris Ward used um, was manipulate the game. They've been really good at that uh, all year, which uh, or not all year, but especially in these last few months. Um, to just be able to, regardless of personnel, uh, sort of adapt to what's going on and and change things up and, and see if they can just sort of catch their opponent off guard. And, and you know, obviously they're in the final. It's, it's not going badly. Jason, you walked us through players and, and coaches and tactics. Is there anything else that you, you want to get to on this game? Something I didn't ask you that you wish I had, and then, and then I might snag a prediction from you for this final before we get out of here. I will say that, uh, you know, one, one other interesting thing that I haven't really mentioned is the situation uh, with the fullbacks. Um, it's been sort of a revolving door under Ward. There's been a lot of cycling through players. I think it's, I, I counted six or seven combinations have started games. Um, and it's not because of injury. It's been a lot of mixing and matching based on, uh, the opponent based on, you know, in, in a couple spots, they, they didn't want to run Kelly O'Hara into the ground. So some of that was a factor. Um, Paige Nielsen has had to move out into a right back role since they've moved to a back four. Um, Tegan McGrady has had some injuries, so she was coming back. They're building her up. So it is kind of a, it's an adaptation to what they've got, what they have to handle, but it's also been, Interesting to see them handle different teams with uh, different approaches from those spots. It's not just go out there and play right back like Kelly did. Um, you know, when Nielsen plays, they would play her at right back, move O'Hara to left back, and O'Hara's job at left back, she's the width on that entire side. Everyone on the left is kind of tucked in, and she's almost a wing back instead of a fullback. And on the, then on the other side, when O'Hara goes forward, Nielsen tucks in, and they go into a temporary back three. Um, that was against North Carolina. They liked that being able to shift into that, that ad hoc back three against two forwards. But most of the teams in the league don't play with two forwards. There, there's a lot of 4-3-3 in NWSL. And so in these last few games, it's been O'Hara at right back and then McGrady or uh, Julia Rudder at uh, left back. And they've also played it a little differently from each other, which is interesting. McGrady is more kind of a straightforward, traditional attacking left back. Um, and Rodar sometimes likes to to not necessarily get 
as high into the attack. She kind of tucks in a little bit, and they like to throw that changeup at teams where, you know, McGrady maybe doesn't have 90 minutes in her just yet. Um, I think she's come off around the 70th minute in both playoff games. Um, and they, they sort of, this is another way they manipulate the game is to, um, you know, change things just a little um, where Rodar kind of underlaps, kind of connects with the central midfielders a little more in possession uh, and is not necessarily out on the touchline uh, getting high and trying to overlap and, and get behind the defense. So um, that's another situation to watch here against Chicago, who that, you know, being unpredictable from your fullbacks, that might be one of the areas that the spirit need in this game, because it seems like Chicago, especially with Mallory Pugh's availability in question with Kelia uh, Watt um, also in question. I don't expect Chicago to come out and play a wide open game. So those fullbacks are going to see a lot of the ball. And, and if they can make a difference in those spaces that they're going to be afforded, um, that might be the difference between breaking through against this Chicago team or having the games kind of go the way the regular season did, where they couldn't quite solve the Red Stars. And I, I believe they scored once in the three games. So um, kind of a crucial spot for them, uh, how much they can get out of those fullbacks. Before I let you go, Jason, Claire reluctantly gave me a semblance of a prediction, which I respect her for, uh, even her reluctance. Do you have a prediction for this game? I I kind of, I, I will say that um, just as the Spirit are kind of the bogey team for OL Reign, I think Chicago has been that for the Spirit. Um, but I will also say that this will be the first time we've seen the new version of the Spirit against Chicago, a team that can um, push the tempo in a way that the old spirit were unwilling to try to do. Um, and I think that's kind of a key here. Um, so I'm going to go with a, a 2-1 spirit win. I, I have to say I've been keeping track of set pieces, and Chicago is by far the most effective set piece team in the league, at least on the results end. And I'll, I'll give them a yet another uh, set piece goal against the Spirit. I think that would take them to four on the season against the Spirit. Um, but I think Washington has has enough firepower on the field to find a way through and get themselves the win. Well, Jason, thank you so much for joining me. Where can listeners find you? Maybe on Twitter. Where can they read you? Where can they hear you? They heard some of that in the intro, but I, I want to reemphasize it again here. Uh, my Twitter account is at Jason DC soccer, uh, all one word. And the Plex weather account is at Plex weather, which is also all one word. And all of the written stuff will be, uh, or at least to my, the best of my knowledge will be at, uh, at black and red U, uh, which is again, all one word. Um, and I think that's all of it. Fantastic. Jason Anderson, thank you. And, and another thank you to Claire Watkins, who joined us earlier. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. And the Total Soccer Show will be back again very soon. <laughs>